We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Good morning. My name is Irving. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is December 23rd, 2020. So in a couple of days here, I will have two years that I've had the privilege of being a part of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am originally from Chicago, born and raised. You know, growing up in Chicago can be tough, depending on where you're from, uh, what area. And I was uh, actually raised in a pretty tough neighborhood. A lot of gangs, drugs, and violence, uh, prostitution, stuff like that. I didn't know anything different. I I didn't know that there was anything wrong with that because that was an everyday occurrence in my life. And so growing up, my parents worked a lot. I am Hispanic. My parents, like I said, worked a lot. So we were, uh, me and my younger sister were latchkey kids. For anyone that knows or may not know what that means, uh, that means that basically our parents were at work and we had keys to the house and I would uh, pick up my little, I would drop off my little sister at school. And then after school, I would go pick her up and then we'd hurry home to avoid all the craziness and kind of just make it home and lock ourselves in until our parents came home. They would uh, leave us uh, little chores and stuff to keep us busy and try to keep us out of trouble. As a kid, I always felt different. And I know that a lot of alcoholics say that, you know, that we we don't know where we fit in or we just don't fit in to society, to the world, you know. And as a kid, I always remember having that feeling of just being different somehow. Like I, I couldn't really um, explain how, but I, I just, it was a feeling that I just felt that was different, but not in a, not in a good way, just odd, you know. So it led to, a, um, you know, me being uh, bullied a lot. And uh, I, Went through a lot as a child. Uh, now I know that it is it, considered trauma. It was basically physically, <clears throat> mentally, and sexually. I, I, I've made peace with a lot of that in my life. I, I understand that there's things that are beyond my control. Those were things that I actually discussed with my sponsor, you know, when it came time to, uh, you know, do inventories and all that stuff. You know, a lot of that stuff, you know, started resurfacing after so many years. And uh, we had to address them, you know, case by case basis and whatnot. And just kind of come to the understanding that sometimes things happen that we don't know why they do, but we can't stay there, you know. Before I started drinking as, I started drinking when I was 14. But prior to that, like I said, I had a lot of things going on as a child uh, in a negative manner. And one of those things that happened, I don't know why, but I started stealing, like just at, at a very young age. and. I, I had a terrible experience where, and mind you, my parents, uh, I am first generation here. So I, um, my parents weren't very knowledgeable uh, people, should I say. They they weren't, they didn't go to school, you know, back in the, uh, in their country. So when they came here, they just worked. And, and you know, they, they, like I said, they worked a lot. So they really didn't have communication skills or any of that. So a, a lot of, there was a lot of yelling as a child. There was a lot of uh uh, physical like beatings, abuse, um, and I I remember as a child feeling that sometimes that aggression wasn't like like I could tell that it was a lot like there, it was like overkill for whatever uh, I had done. They, I always felt like that was just a little bit more of a beating. Like there was something, there was a little emphasis on that, but that emphasis had nothing to do with whatever I was in trouble for. It, it was just like some personal stuff that was coming out with that. I laugh about it now, but you know, when I was younger, it was, it was different. And on one occasion I had taken some money from my mother that was part of a candy sale at school. And I, I, I had a thing for the arcades. I, I love playing video games and, but we didn't have any money. We didn't have anything, man. We We basically grew up with, Salvation Army clothes and and you know we we lived in a small little apartment with like roaches and rats and stuff you know and and so it was it was it was weird but uh I I took I took some money and you know I I shouldn't have did that but I did and um you know my mother uh trying to do the right thing or or try to teach me a lesson decided that uh the best way to address that and to get me to not do that again was basically to burn my hands on the stove um it was very traumatizing for me. I've, uh, me and my mother have spoken about this. You know, I've actually made my amends to my mother and and we've discussed all these things. And my mother has also begged me for forgiveness uh, for all the things. And she recognizes now that a lot of those things were not, were not right at all. 
And uh, we, we've had our discussion about that. But I say that because that completely broke my trust in adults, which led to a big issue, big, bigger issues later in my life where I, I just, you know, at that point, I figured that, you know, if the person that's supposed to love you the most in this world would do that to you, then what could you expect from strangers? What could you expect from anyone else? You know, and there was something broken that day between me, um, me and my mother, you know. And uh, yeah, so dad, dad wasn't in the picture. Uh, my real dad uh, left when I was very young. I was I was maybe two or three years old. Uh, my dad uh, had a thing for being with several women at the same time. He he wasn't a drinker or or a drug addict or any of that. He just yeah, you know, he just really bounced around from from woman to woman. I uh, because of that, I have uh, stepsisters and stepbrother, and and I have like seven stepsisters and a and a little brother out there somewhere they, you know we we have contact very rarely but they're aware of my existence and i'm aware of theirs and yeah so my stepfather raised me my stepfather's a good man very hard working a good provider but again really no social skills you know very quiet man a few words as they say so he would just try to do his he did he did his best i believe with what he had uh going on um you know we were just discussing not too long ago about how you know, this man has been in our our lives for our basically our whole lives, and yet we know very little about him. You know, other than he went to work a lot, and he just kind of took care of us, you know, and provided a shelter, roof over our head, and whatnot. But overall, good man. He never beat my mother. Never, uh, you know, called her names or cut, cursed her out or any of that. You know, uh, they've been together for almost forty years now. They they're still married, and uh, you know, again. Um, my mother at one point decided to start going to church. And so then a religion became a big part of our lives so much so that we just basically lived in church and I ended up becoming a pastor's son. My dad got really involved too. And over the years, like I said, my dad became a pastor, had his own church. Yeah. I, uh, you know, since that became my parents' life, that also became our lives. I, I didn't really like it, but I didn't really have a choice. I, yeah, I came from, mentality was um you're going to church and you're gonna like it and you have no choice so you know you're going and so uh, because i was forced to i just really didn't take to it and so i you know i had no friends um well i had friends at, at school and in the neighborhood and then i had friends from church so at that point i i could already feel myself uh splitting in two you know i'd be one person when i was in the in in the hood or the neighborhood and then i was another person at church you know, I, so right away as a, as a young kid, I, I started putting on different faces, you know, different masks. It was about maybe about seventh grade, I, I believe. Uh, we ended up uh, moving out of the city into the suburbs. And that's when things got even heavier for me uh, in my life because we moved to the suburbs, but we still had the same um life in a sense that we we didn't have money and all of a sudden i was thrown into a world of being around kids who had money who came from parents that had stuff and so these kids were well dressed and you know had the coolest stuff and whatever and we basically you know still i remember even in seventh grade my mom would still go to like uh salvation army you know and, and pick our clothes like that's where we got like the new clothes for the following school year you know and it was it was by, by then i was a very very much aware of you know obviously trends fashion and and, and stuff like that and so I, I it was always like you know um i i found myself just very focused on that and, and being very aware of the fact that I didn't look like other kids that I didn't dress like other kids. And I, I was very self-conscious about that, you know, and I, I remember like I started stealing my, my mom um, used to do little side jobs and little stuff like that. And so she was always like, you know, my mom's always been a bit of a hustler as it, as it comes to money. You know, she's always, always, always doing something to make money besides her regular job. And uh, you know, I've always really liked that about her. She's very motivated, very ambitious. And so she would always have like cash, you know, handy. And so I would uh, often uh, dip into her purse and I would steal money from her and I would go out and buy these clothes. But the problem is, is that I couldn't, I, I could only wear these clothes at school. I couldn't wear them at home because obviously my mom knows that I don't have that stuff, which means now I have to answer questions. And then, of course, she knew I was taking the money. And so it just became this thing. It became this weird little game where I would pretend that I didn't take the money, but then I had to like hide the clothes. It's it's just a mess. I graduated eighth grade. I, I I finished seventh grade. I got there about half half a year into the 
half of, yeah, I got there about halfway through the year, school year. And then I went on to eighth grade and it was again, the, the, the same, uh, the same story, me trying to fit in. And I was already acting up, uh, cause I was this kid from Chicago, uh, in the suburbs now. And then I started high school and then that summer of high school that I started my freshman year, that's when things like just really started changing. I, um, no longer wanted to be a part of church. I no longer wanted to uh, be a part of anything. I wanted to be with my friends. And I really was not allowed to have any type of like uh, life outside of church. My parents were very strict about me going out, period. I don't know if that was because I was like um, the firstborn or if I was just, I mean, because as a boy, I figured I'd get more to be with than my sisters. But yeah, that just, I, I just, it didn't happen. Anyways, I don't remember my first drink. I, I do remember I was like 14 or 15. I do remember my first high though. I smoked pop for the first time out of a crushed Coke can with uh, one of my buddies from high school. But I remember we did that and then we went to an arcade, which I already stated was like my thing, you know, that was my jam. I used to love it. And, and yeah. And I remember just like feeling like it was like the coolest thing. After that, uh, I took the drugs and alcohol almost instantly. Uh, I remember when I was already drinking that it was an instant love affair. I That's the only way I really I could just put it. I just, I, I felt like I sighed. Like I finally let out the longest sigh in the world of relief. Now I, I, I didn't have to feel anymore. I didn't have to deal with it any, anything anymore. I had the courage to fight whoever I needed to fight to talk to whoever I needed to talk to. There was this false uh, false confidence and false courage and all this stuff, you know, came along with that. I didn't make it through my freshman year. I ended up uh, getting kicked out of school for not going to school. And, uh, you know, I was given the option of, uh, you know, you're either going to go to school or you're going to go to work. And I said, I'm going to go to work. And I, I didn't go to work. I, I basically just uh, kept on drinking and getting high. As an addict, and, and an alcoholic, I wasn't a good one. I, I was a very lazy one. I um, didn't really have that hustle mentality that my mom had. You know, like to me, I just, I would just scrape up enough money to get high, like get what I needed. And that was that, you know, I, I didn't think about the next day or, or any of that. So it, uh, it quickly took over. It quickly took over. I would get a job. I'd keep it to my first paycheck. And then after that, I'd spend all my money and, and yeah, yeah. And one night I would spend all my money because I just, you know, I, I had to. And uh, of course, that also allowed me to be a part of uh, certain crowds where, you know, that was also my way in. I, because I, I said earlier that I, at a very young age, I started learning how to like put on different faces and different masks. Well, it was kind of the same way my in my um, late teens, you know, I would move in and out of different circles, you know, like I, I was a bit of a chameleon there for, for a long time where I could, you know, the, I, I would hang out with the gang, with the gang members, uh, the gang bangers. I would uh, hang out with the skateboarders. I would hang out on, you know, at the train tracks. I would be in the nice neighborhoods, you know, in the nice homes with, you know, with uh, other people from school, you know, so I, I, I was kind of like just in different various types of circles. So it was uh, constantly me switching up and putting on different masks, depending on where I was at uh, and, and who I was with. And, and I was so wanting to be part of anything and anyone that I would do whatever I had to, to, to just make you like me. I needed, I needed your approval. I needed you to like me. And the thought of you not liking me would just eat me up. And I just, I couldn't have that. So you said, jump. I said, how high? doesn't matter if I don't know you, you know, we're, we're you know, we're, I, I got to do this. And so it was a big part of my life. It quickly took over. Like I said, alcohol and drugs quickly took over. And because I had issues already, it was an explosion in my life, but in a very negative way. By the time I was 18, I was already doing a lot of cocaine. And by 19, I attempted suicide for the first time in my garage, my parents' garage. Uh, I tried to hang myself with an electrical cord. Um, obviously, it didn't work, but um, yeah, yeah, that was the first of many trips to uh, hospitals and, and psych wards. And whatnot. 
at 20, I caught my first three felonies and I was put on felony probation. Actually, actually I was looking at, if I remember correctly, I, I was looking at three, three, three to fives. Yeah, there was like three to five years on each count. And so I was in big trouble. And that was the first time I'd, I'd been in that much trouble. Uh, so they ended up putting me on felony probation. And my parents thought it'd be better for me to get out of Chicago. So I did. I got out of Chicago and I, I had an uncle who lived down in uh, Florida. And so I went down there and I went down there to go to a program. Uh, that was my first time going to a program, being out of, being outside of Chicago and my first time being in um in any type of rehab. And I ended up going to a place in uh, called Faith Farm Ministries. And this place is kind of like a Salvation Army uh, type. They they own um, like a secondhand store. People donate stuff and then you get to live there and you also work there. But it was uh, faith-based. So it was a Christian place. So they didn't have 12 steps. They would just really believe that you just had to accept, you know, Lord Jesus into your heart and everything was going to be okay. And, you know, you had to dress a certain way. You had to dress properly, wear your shirt and tie and that type of stuff. And um I was there for a little while and things seemed to be going well. For once in my life, I was I was eating right. I was getting sleep. I was uh, working out a little bit and whatnot. And so uh, I felt good and uh, I left. I left before the program was done and I relapsed. I relapsed almost instantly. I uh, went back. I had gone back to my uncle's house and um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't take long. I think I was there for maybe like two weeks before I, I relapsed. And uh, I ended up going to, uh, I was walking by a bar. And, <laughs> and I'll never forget it. I, I forgot the name of it. Well, it. It doesn't matter. But they had a nickel draft Wednesday. And then that's and that's that story. I ended up going back to my uncle's house. I was drunk. Uh, he said something to me. I snapped off. And the next day I was getting dropped off back at the, <laughs> back at the, um, at the rehab, at the Christian rehab. Again, I stayed there for a little bit longer. This time I met some guys. Uh, I had met some other guys, and uh, they were going to go to a halfway house, and I thought it would be a good idea to get out of there and go to a, try, try a halfway house, and I did. And so that was my first time at a halfway house as well. And the halfway house uh, required you to go to meetings, and so they gave me a piece of paper, and I was supposed to go to AA meetings and get the paper signed, and that was my first encounter with AA. Uh, that would have been 2001. I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time, and the place was, uh, it was a fellowship club, it was a clubhouse, and it was full of smoke and old people, and I was like, yeah, no, this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, and so I figured out quickly that I, if you just waited long enough, you could just like leave your paper there, and you could sneak out, and then just come back at the end of the meeting. And just pick up your paper and it'd be signed. Uh, I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't do anything. I really wasn't interested in doing any of that. I just just kind of wanted to uh, do my own thing. I didn't want to be bothered with uh, sobriety or any of that. So that didn't work. I ended up getting kicked out of the halfway house because, again, I wouldn't stay sober. And I, I wouldn't keep a job either. So I ended up trying to uh, commit suicide by taking uh, a lot of pills Thankfully, I didn't. I remember I made it to a hospital and they called the cops. And the cop, actually, instead of, like, taking me to jail or anything, actually dropped me off at a detox, uh, took the drugs and everything I had on me and told him there was a – I remember there was a sewer there. And he told me to throw it all away. And I remember him telling me, don't ever tell anyone that I did this for you. He said, now you, go, now you get in there. He didn't even walk me to the door. And I, I remember, like, I think I might have crawled halfway there. I was so messed up still from the effects of the pills and i walked in and i uh woke up a few days later to the news that i had almost died and yeah yeah and i stayed there for a little while kind of got it together and then decided that uh i was ready oh you know what i'm sorry actually i, I gotta backtrack just real quick so before i left to florida I had met a young lady at one of my jobs and uh, she, I don't know. I miss like, Wow. But uh, I, uh, I have a 20, 21 year old son right now. And uh, he, uh, she was pregnant with him at the time. And I think she was maybe like three or four months pregnant with him when I left to Florida. And so after I left to Florida, I, I just, I didn't come back for like two, almost two and a half years. So by the time I got a chance to meet my son, 
yeah, he wasn't, uh, yeah, he was, he was already like born and, you know, he was already walking around and whatnot. And so I ended up after, after that, uh, almost near death experience and that detox and, and that short stint in that another rehab, I thought to myself that I needed to come back home and that I needed to be a father and that I needed to get it together. And I did, I came back home and that didn't work out well for me either. I came home and relapsed shortly after getting here. And it ended up uh, with me leaving and then basically not being a part of my son's life for a long, long time. By then, I was already smoking crack and and drinking a lot. I was uh, homeless a lot. I was using rehabs as shelters, just basically going in and out of places to stay, you know, having a place to stay or giving my, my liver a rest or a break. And little stints in jail here and there in and out of my family's life. It was always very more like I was, I, I hurt my family a lot. My parents, I stole from my family a lot, but they would always let me come back home. And I, I promised them that I, I, I wouldn't, that I wouldn't do it again. And then I would. And then when they would kick me out, I'd, I'd tell them how it was, this was all their fault because of the things that had happened when I was a child and how basically they dropped the ball and that the reason all this was happening was basically their fault. And that if anything, they should be apologizing to me. And I used that for a long, long time in my life, for over 20, 25 years of my life. At any time, anyone ever said anything to me about my behavior, I would always revert to that. Yeah, and what about this? And what about that? And where were you when this happened? And where were you when that happened? And, you know, and I, I just, you know, that, that was my go-to. That was my go-to. You know, I used it every chance I could and I milked it for all I could. And I hurt my family in the process of doing it. And I hurt and I continue to hurt myself, too. After things didn't work out with my son's mother and, and me trying to be a father, I, uh, like I said, was in and out of my parents' house, in and out of the streets. And that's when I realized that, you know, because I couldn't keep a job because I, I realized that there was people that were willing to pay um, for things. You know, and those things were uh, sexual in nature. And at that point in my life, I, uh, you know, I, I basically became a prostitute, you know. And it was my desire for alcohol and drugs, like, superseded everything in my life. It didn't matter. I didn't care. I would just kind of just, I don't know, close my eyes and just pretend, some, you know, something else, somewhere else. I I, I don't know. Um. And it was even it, it wasn't even I, I I wish I could sit there and say that, you know, I'd go to the highest bidder or anything like that. I didn't. I didn't. If I needed a beer, that's what I needed. And people took advantage of that and I took advantage of them. For a long time in my life, I was in and out of relationships with, you know, women who were willing to be with me. Uh, men were willing to be with me. And, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter because I needed to drink. I needed to get high. Nothing else mattered to me in my life. Um, and for a long time, I, I, I did that, you know. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I frequented places where things like that tend to happen. And, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, uh, it's a part of my life, you know. It, it's a part of my story that uh, still is, is sometimes uh, I've never have identified as uh, as being gay or bisexual or any of that nature. I'm actually in a in a monogamous relationship with with a woman I love. I, lo- I love her very much. Um, so, but anyways, um, and you know, at 28, I ended up getting in more trouble, more legal problems to the point where the judge was basically like, "That's it. You're done." No more probation, no more nothing. We're tired of seeing you. You are going to the Department of Corrections. And I did. I went to the Department of Corrections. And from the age of 28 till 40, I basically spent my life in the Department of Corrections. I probably have given the penal system about 12 years of my life. I've been in some very bad places, you know, as far as uh, prisons go. A lot of uh, time in solitaire, confinement, bit of a nightmare, nightmarish life. Ironically, I never touched drugs or alcohol on the inside. It was the weirdest thing. I could stay sober. 
I could, I, I was, I was straight, you know, straight in the narrow inside, man, inside where we, I, I think that most people would say, well, that would have been the time to, to actually, you know, drink something or, or do pop some pills or whatever else that, you know, people during that time are in there doing, you know, but I didn't for whatever reason, man, I was, I, I followed the rules in prison. I followed the rules. I made my bed. I did everything I was supposed to do. I didn't steal from anybody. It was ironic that I would, that, that I could follow the rules for strangers, but I could not follow the rules for my family that I could respect strangers, but I would not respect my family, my mother, my father, their home. I would respect my, my cellmate who I didn't know, but I wouldn't respect my, my father, my mother, my brother, my sisters, you know, or anyone in my life. Not even myself, you know. And I would always come home and mess up. You know, I'd stay clean for a little while and things would be, you know, things would be going okay. And then as soon as things got good, I would just somehow find a find a way to throw a wrench in it. Crack and alcohol became my go-to for for pretty much you know that that was my drug of choice uh for, for years. For years. And it was the same old story. And I think that as far as like, you know, as far as like um my experience, I think I think that's that's pretty much Enough of that. I was incarcerated on my last incarceration. I was incarcerated for a robbery. And uh, the judge told me that uh, he, he rejected a few plea deals. And then finally he came to uh, he came to an agreement. We came to an agreement and he basically looked at me and said, Mr. He's like, I just want you to know that if I ever see you again, I'll never see you again. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I was like, yes, sir. And I went away. And uh, during that incarceration, things uh, things started changing. I had never felt so alone in my life. I have never felt so empty, so just distant. Like I, I was at a death that that it just didn't matter anymore. Nothing mattered anymore. I, I, I didn't I didn't want to die, but I just didn't know what I was doing anyways. Like, what's the point in living if this is going to be my life? Like, um, they had actually reduced, like, I, I, when I first started going to prison, like, the, the phone calls were very expensive. So, you know, a lot of people didn't answer because, first of all, you know, they didn't want to talk to me because they were upset with me. But they were really expensive. And then this time around, they were actually very cheap. Like, it was less than a penny, if that's even possible, less than a cent per minute. And so I was able, I, I had a job uh, working in the kitchen. And so I was able to actually put my little money that I would get my little stipend every month. They would give me a little stipend. And I would. I was actually able to put money from my little stipend onto the phone so that I could call home. So I basically, at that point, the phone call was free. All they had to do was answer. And you know what? Nobody was answering. Nobody was answering a free phone call from me. And I just never felt so alone in my life. I just, I, I couldn't, I, I didn't like that. And I had this moment where we had this little blind spot where uh, guys used to go in the back to have like gang meetings or like do gambling or whatever, whatever they want to do. Some guys would just go back there and just kind of sit by themselves. And on one occasion, I went to that little spot. There was nobody back there. I went back there, man. And I remember just facing the wall and I was pretending like I was praying, but I was, you know, but I just, you know, that's kind of what I was, you know, doing back there. And so I was facing the wall and I remember I just said, God, I, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I, I can't live like this anymore. If, if, if this is, if this is what you, if this is what you made me for, then what's, what's the point, man? You know, what's the point? And I started crying. God, I started crying. I, I cried like I had never cried in my life. The sounds that came out of my throat that day, the tears that came out of my eyes, the snot that was coming out of my nose. And, and you know, it's such a taboo thing to cry in prison too, man. And, I, and I'm sitting there trying to keep it together. And I, yeah, I don't know if anyone heard me or not, but I just, it didn't matter. It didn't matter anymore. Nobody, they, who cared, right? I mean, who cares? Fuck. And I I was done. I finished up crying and whatever. And I went to my cell and I, I felt like I, I felt like I slept for like two days after that. And when I woke up, something was different. I just felt different. I felt like something had lifted off of me. And I started going to meetings. They had meetings once a week. 
the guys, the volunteers were not allowed to sponsor you uh, or anything like that, but they, they they could just come in and basically just, you know, guide the meeting. And um, yeah, so I, I, I had a book. I got, I got the big book and I got the 12 and 12 and I would read them. And, but nobody else really went to AA, so I really didn't have anyone to share it with. And I, I wrote to the to the AA uh, thing in New York, you know, trying to get a pen pal and stuff, but nobody ever wrote back and nobody ever got in contact with me. So I was like, all right. So I just kind of read the book and tried to, you know, for once in my life, I read the book. I had gotten copies of it in the past, but I just never really paid attention to it. You know, I'd gone to AA in the past, but it was just kind of to placate my family and just to kind of get people off my back. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go. And then I I'd go to a meeting and it always made sense to me. Like, oh, I knew that I knew these people were telling me something. I just didn't, I, I just wasn't ready. Like I, I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. I just didn't want, you know, I didn't want to stop drinking. I, I, I just didn't want the consequences. And that's the honest truth. I mean, really, though, I just didn't want the consequence. I was perfectly fine with drinking, like drinking what I was drinking and, and doing what I was doing. I just didn't want to get in trouble. I just didn't want to, you know, people tell me anything. But obviously, that's not the way it works. And so when I this time around, when I finally got my my book and I actually read it, I read it from the beginning. And I found myself in those pages. And I started like having, you know, pulling out a dictionary and reading stuff and, and looking up words and trying to find out what it meant. I, I, I had to look up what a uh, constitutionally uh, <laughs> meant because I wasn't, I, you know, I didn't know what that word meant, but I had, I had looked it up and I started finding words like where it talks about uh, we of all colleagues anonymous are group of people who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless situation and that word recovered. I started giving me hope. Um, chapter five, where it says, you know, there is a solution, or it might be six, whatever. And but um, you know, where it says there is a solution, more hope. And then it was, you know, how it works. You know, where it says rarely, right at the beginning, rarely. And I, I just, I, I was just ready. I found myself in those pages. I realized that those pages were were me. I was an alcoholic, and that I needed that I was that I was in trouble. And I needed help. And that God could and would if he were sought. And so I started looking. Started going to meetings. People would make fun of me. Like, oh, where you going, man? I'm going to AA. Oh, okay. You know, whatever. And I just kind of started doing my thing. Came home. Middle of COVID. No ID, no job, no nothing. Because everything was closed down anyways. But luckily, right across the street from my fiance's apartment, there was a church. And that church, one day I came down the steps and I looked outside and there was a bunch of guys smoking outside. And I said, guys don't smoke. People don't smoke outside of churches. And I walked over there and I talked to the guy. I said, like, hey, man. I was like, you know, when there's any meetings, he's like, yeah, there's one right here. He said, you got to have a mask on. I was like, okay. So I went back and started going to in-person meetings there. Didn't get a sponsor, though. Didn't really uh, do much. I kind of just sat around and I shared, but I kind of just listened to what other people were saying, you know. And I, and I just, you know, I was happy to be there. I, you know, I kind of just went through the motions of, hi, my name is Irving. I'm an alcoholic and I am so grateful to be here, you know, and this and this and that. But I really wasn't working a program and it showed. I'm sure like everyone knew. <laughs> yeah, but I just kept coming back. You know, I just didn't get it. People were like, yeah, keep coming back, man. And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. You know, and eventually I ended up finding employment and me and my fiance. Also, I have a, I have a beautiful adopted little daughter who's also part of my life and uh you know the program the promises have given me and my fiance that and uh we were able to purchase a home and we moved and at the time i wasn't driving because they had taken my license away uh my driver's license i don't have any duis or any drug possession charges or anything like that ironically apparently i didn't know that if you i guess over here in illinois i don't know if it's different but apparently if you use a vehicle in the commission of a crime, they automatically uh, cancel, like not, not revoke, cancel your license. So I didn't have a license. Like it, it was like, it never even existed. So I had to hire an attorney. And so, because I didn't have a car and my fiance was already dropping me off and picking me up from, from work and everything. I just didn't want to burden her. And then there was no meetings that were close to me or even open in some cases. So I was doing a lot of zoom meetings and that's where I met my sponsor. Uh, I met my sponsor through a Zoom meeting, just random Zoom meeting. I met up with him. Uh, he's actually in D.C. And yes, he does know where I'm at. He does know that I'm, I'm, I'm right now having this podcast. And yeah, he was a godsend, man. Uh, he's also from Chicago, even though he lives in D.C. 
who we got to talking and stuff. And he started helping me out through the steps. And I was on step three when I decided uh, that it would be a good idea. And I, to, I, so we picked up my mother-in-law's prescription and uh, one night and she had gotten a prescription for Vicodin. And I do have like certain back issues. Um, and I ended up, uh, we picked up her prescription. I remember I opened up the bag and I went and I took one of her pills. And I popped it. And I knew, I knew, I mean, I knew that my back hurt, but I also knew that it would give me that little kick, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah, that's how I ended up with uh, the sobriety date that I have today. Otherwise, it, it, it would have been a lot longer. I, I'd have more time um, as a, as a, it would, my sobriety date would reflect more years. But um, nevertheless, I confessed to him, I, I told my sponsor where it happened. He was like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and reset that timer, man. You know, you're <laughs> back to, back to square one, bud. And, um, yeah, yeah, you know, that's how that, that happened. And um, ever since then, I've been working on the steps. Uh, my fourth step was was not so bad. My fifth step, when it actually came to do it, I almost bailed on my sponsor with certain things because uh, I was going to use the excuse of basically um, the part in the book where it says, if you're not comfortable, go talk to a priest or a therapist. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'll tell my sponsor this, but I'm not going to tell him any of that. I'm going to go to someone else because I don't know. You know, he might tell. And in the end, I ended up uh, being honest and and basically just being a man about it and just saying, okay, you know what, man? No. No, let's just do this. And I did it. And yes, there was another release in my life from a lot of things. As it time went on, I, I started making my list of amends. I am currently working in my amends. Uh, I have had the privilege and the honor to make amends to my parents. And since I uh, was able to get my license back, it cost me a lot of money, but I was able to get my license back. I bought a car. And... Both times that I made my amends have been in the process of helping my parents do something. So I would pick them up. Most of my amends have been in my car. <laughs> I've I've gone to meet up with people and like we just sit in my car and you know, I, I tell them, you know, I tell them I'm an alcoholic, you know, and I did this, this, and the other, and it was wrong and it was selfish. And I and, and I tell them, you know what? And and people have just been so, so amazingly forgiving to me. Other things, I, I I would very much have expected my parents to say, "We don't want nothing to do with you, man. Get out of here. We don't believe you." I mean, you've told us this a million times. This time around, I've never told my parents anything. I didn't come home and tell my parents that I was changing. I didn't come home and 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 say or doing. I just I just did it. I just did it. I got right to it, right to it, and I did it. And yeah, I'm still like you know. There's a lot. The the list of amends is huge, you know. And of course, you know, there's other work in my life as well. As I said, I. Uh, the program has given me so much. Uh, we we were, we were able to purchase this home. I recently, my, I, I have more work than I know what to do with on my hands. Uh, you know, for once in my life, I am making type of money that I that I could only dream of. And I'm able to help my family and be there for my family. You know, it's amazing. I actually um, have, you know, I, I am now that person, you know, that whenever you, you know, whenever you have spare keys, you know, that person that you give your spare key to, to your house, your car, whatever, you know, just in case you lose your keys, that person you trust, I'm that person now in my family. I have keys to my mom's house. I have keys to my sister's house. Because of my job, I, I have keys to some of the finest restaurants in downtown Chicago. People trust me with their businesses. People trust me with their, with their stuff. And it's such an honor to have that feeling. I am so grateful because of that, you know, like that all of this is because of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and God in my life. You know, to think that we have a we have an adopted little girl who in their right mind would ever have given me anything back in the day, let alone a child. And here I am, you know, and it goes from one extreme to the next. Three years ago, I was I was sitting in a box. Waiting for my day to come home. And three years later, I'm sitting in a beautiful home. Surrounded by people that love me, being being a helpful part of my family, being someone they could depend on. You know, I drive my whenever my parents leave out of the country, whatever. I usually drop them off and pick them up at the airport. My mom's going through a very uh, tough time right now. She's sick, and she's uh, she's out of the country right now, seeing a specialist. And I'm able to send her money for her medication because it's expensive. And I don't know if she's gonna stick around or not, but that's okay. 
because she's happy. She's happy that I'm no longer the same person. You know, she told me she told me that she could die happy now. And I was like, please don't <laughs> be happy, but please don't die. There's so much I want to talk to you about, you know. And my dad too, you know. It's just it's 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 a great part. And I'm sorry for being so emotional. It's just that I look in the mirror sometimes and I just don't recognize this guy. I I, I don't know. I don't know. My past life, sometimes it seems like it was a really bad dream. And then I've woken up. But it wasn't. It was it was a reality yet. You know, but it's no longer my reality. And um, as far you know, what I uh, I do service work as well. I I go uh, speak at a treatment center. Me and one of my brothers from AA. I actually asked for work for service work, and uh, somebody was like, "Yeah, talk to so and so." And I talked to so and so, and they're like, "Yeah, we know. Here, here's a number. Call this guy." And I did, and uh, I went with them, and you know, we go there and we share our experience, strength, and hope with other people. You know. I try to be helpful as, as wherever I can. I don't sponsor anyone as of yet. Um, I've put it out there. I give up my number at meetings. Um, I don't know. You know, nobody, nobody ever really calls me. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's whatever. You know what I mean? I, I, I do my part. I, you know, I, I guess when the time comes, you know, we'll see. But other than that, you know, all I can say is that um, Alcoholics Anonymous has been just this amazing blessing in my life and it's not and it's not perfect it's not you know i i have so many things and so many character defects also that i have to work on there's still a lot of uh, bad habits that tend to pop up you know but compared to what my life was to what it is today i mean really there's no comparison and i wouldn't trade it i wouldn't trade it for anything yeah i mean i i mean i i i love to have hope i love to have strength and I love being there for my family and I love being there for AA and and give back you know whatever I can uh because without the program honestly I I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be here I'd probably be dead you know there was many a times uh that situations could have led me to die being in places that I had no business being in and being involved with people that I had no business being involved in you know but for whatever reason um you know God saw fit to let me go through all that. And now I have the privilege of being here today, you know, and being able to share my story. And uh, yeah, I think that's all I got. Thank you. Thank you, Irving. I loved your emotion. It was so raw and so genuine and so beautiful. And what a wonderful turnaround in three years. And I, you know, anybody can listen to this and think, oh, I can't relate. He was in prison. I can't relate. He this. I can't relate. He, you know, grew up in, you know, gang territory or however. I don't know the right terminology. But <laughs> but I can relate so much to, well, let me actually even back up. I don't have to relate. If you can get sober, I can get sober, Right. Yeah. Like, wow, that's yeah. some messed up stuff that you've been through. I mean, from the beginning, you're talking about physical, mental abuse and and then prison and drugs and alcohol and brokenness and not belonging. And there's so much healing that has occurred in your journey and you drew it out for us to follow along with what you've experienced and what your life is today. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I tell people like, you know, I don't tell them, but I often I, I, I listen to people talk sometimes and uh, and I say sometimes <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very hard for me sometimes to not minimize people's things, you know, especially right. when they, when I hear them say something that I'm like, really, that's, that's, that's what's eating you, man. Cause I, I really think that, you know, we should talk like I really, and I'm not trying to like, one up you i'm just simply telling you that if i can do it i promise you man i promise you there's no reason why you should be in this situation man there there isn't you know and I, I, again you know you know how many people tried to tell me that you know and i was the same way i was the same way so i get, i get to see both sides of it i i really do i get to see both sides of that you know where i was once that person who also just didn't want to hear it and wasn't ready and just like really couldn't relate and now I'm on the other side saying, hey, no, totally. Listen, I can help you avoid a lot of stuff in your life. <laughs> Just hear me out. 
Oh, I feel like we say that to our kids. Let me just, mm-hmm. let me make it easy, easier for you, but. All right. I yeah. have some questions for you. Okay. What fascinates me is when you were in jail, you, and you, it sounds like it was, you know, a dozen years in and out. You never touched drugs or alcohol inside. Yeah. No. It it was the weirdest thing. Like, you know, they would make uh, their little homemade hooch. And there were other drugs. There were, like, real drugs, too. I mean, you know, I really, I don't know if people know that, but, I mean, there's a lot of, like, real drugs in there mm-hmm. as well. And uh, because I was, I, I was always in and out of different circles. And, and, you know, being in prison, talk about having to put on a mask. It, it, yeah, that, that's the one place where, you know. You you definitely have to have a uh, yeah math gun, but uh per se, but um yeah, they, you know there there'd be drugs all around me, you know, and uh, drinking and you know and I and I just I didn't I didn't. I remember there was one occasion where somebody had offered me like half of a nicotine pouch and I took it right, and I remember I was so nervous about getting in trouble. And plus, I hadn't had anything in a long time that it actually made me sick to my stomach. And I was like, never again. You know, it is just like and it was just so weird. You know, maybe I was holding out for the real thing. You know, <laughs> maybe I was like, no, I don't want any of this. I'm going to wait till I go home and get the real stuff, I guess. But it just never I never did it. I, I was straight edge. I would follow, I'd go, I'd go. I'd work out. I'd eat right. I did everything I had to do. I followed the rules. Like I said, made my bed, kept my area nice and tidy, uh, my hygiene, everything, everything nice and clean cut, all that, all the stuff that I should have been doing out here. But for whatever reason, you know, I, I, I didn't do it. And then when my release date would come, I, I didn't bring any of those habits home with me. I would just leave everything there. Like, okay, thank you. Here's all your good, uh, good behaviors is right there. And I'm, I got it from here. Well, this is where my question comes in. Do you think the schedule, the accountability, the rules, the guidelines, the guardrails on life that were demanded on you in prison that you didn't have growing up and you didn't have in life made you feel safe? So you followed them and you wanted to feel safe? Or do you think there's anything about comfort in rules that you got in following them while you were in? I think, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think to a certain degree, yeah. I, I think that the structure, you know, I, I think that because my life was so chaotic, it was nice to have some sort of routine, like a, you know, and and that's really what it was. A lot of this time around, I, when I came home, I brought home all my habits. You know, it's, I actually brought all that stuff home with me. Like I never stopped going to meetings. I, I, I keep a tidy place. I keep up with my, my hygiene, all that stuff. So yeah, there was something. Uh, and I th- yeah, yeah, I think it was because of the how chaotic my life was that it was um it, it, your your life has to be pretty messed up to actually feel safe in prison. Hmm. You know, to feel like okay, I'm safe here. Well, safe I here. relate because when I was in rehab I when I got out, I would fantasize about the time I was in rehab when I would feel unsafe or anxious. I would, in my mind, I'd go back to those 28 days because I felt so safe in rehab. I was fed three times a day. I had a bed. I had meeting. I had accountability. So I can, I'm relating a little bit to that piece where I felt safe. And I think as a human, I came here, I can't so much relate where I didn't belong, but I can relate to this. I never felt safe. And I don't think there's anything anybody could have done to make me feel safe. And when I had my first drinking, when I started drinking, I started not needing to feel safe anymore. I'm like, fuck it. I don't need to feel safe. I feel good. And it was yeah. on. But yeah, ultimately, sure. my soul just wanted to feel safe. I think I'm making yeah. this about me. <laughs> no, no, no. Seriously. No, I, I never, I guess I never really thought about it. But yeah, I, I you know, that I think you made a good point with that. Um, it, it's, it's, I'm a, just it, riffing it's here. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's my new cool word. <laughs> I'm ten day. De- I'm I'm a decade behind. But we were we were explaining uh my my fiance. So she's uh she works as a school nurse, <laughs> and uh, she's just recently so, uh, she's trying out different things in her life right now, which is which is fine. You know, it's great. Watch her. 
uh, experience different things. But uh, so she's around, you know, young kids. And uh, you know how they, they, they talk just like we did, you know, or just like all of us do in, in our time. We have yeah. our little words and sayings that we use. So me and my nephew are talking the other day and she's like, no cap. And we turned around and looked at her and we're like, what? She's like, yeah, like no cap. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't think that's how that goes. <laughs> and my nephew started laughing and he's like, uh, auntie, he's like, yeah, no, that's that's not how you use that at all. She's like, no, I heard somebody. She's like, he's like, no, no, that's just, yeah, no. Just don't. Just, just don't. <laughs> and she looked so crushed. She was oh, like, oh. I was trying to be cool. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's me. Okay, so you laughed when you talked about Faith Farm Ministries believing or uh, pushing that all you needed to do was accept Jesus and you can stay clean and sober. And I point out your laugh because I imagine behind that laugh, you have the reality of what it really takes to get and maintain sobriety. Well, I can tell you, so, and this is probably something I should have said, but there was a part of, there was a, there was a time in my life, like I said, my parents, when they, when they got involved with church, it basically took up our whole life. Like we were in church at least five days out of the week. And so if we weren't at home, we were at church, like church became our whole life. And the more they got involved, the more obviously we were involved as well. Like I remember we used to go to Sunday school and Sunday night service. Like our whole weekends were like church Our in, in the week it'd be back and forth to church, you know? And so that became our life. And so I developed a resentment against God because in a way I felt like the church had taken my parents away from me. Like they weren't able to be my parents because they were always being someone being there for someone else. And so that was part of like a big, big deal for me. And so for a long time, um, I was angry at God behind that because I really felt like God had stolen my parents from me. Like he had stolen their love, their time, their affection from me because I could, I would see them just give so much to the church. But yet when it came to us, it's like, all we got was, you know, discipline and basically like everything that I considered negative, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me, like, yeah, I was very much a scoffer uh, at stuff like that. And actually I laughed because I was going to say, I was going to do my little Southern because he does Florida and there was one guy in particular, and his name was Brother uh, Brother Dick. And he would always say, like, all you need is baby Jesus, brother. You know? <laughs> and I did it. I held back and just said, gee, but that's why I laughed. Because in my head, that's the way, like, I, I was going to say it. But I'm like, no, I'm going to leave Jesus alone. Oh. I'm not, <laughs> not going to say the whole baby Jesus thing. So, right. But, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what the laugh was about. Uh, okay. But, yeah. I mean, personally, Jesus is my man, but I also believe that Christians can give Jesus a really bad name. Yeah. I just recently just bought, I bought a Bible. I bought a Bible. And like I said, I was raised in a Christian home, so I'm not opposed to the idea of God. I just have never had that personal relationship that most people talk about. I, I, I don't know who God is for me. And so that's also like another journey that I'm on where I try to have these conversations and say, hey, you know. You know, after that moment I, I had in uh, in prison, and the last time where I where I was telling you uh, where I was praying, and I and I had that moment <clears throat> for a long time. Like somebody was like, "You had a spiritual experience," and I was like, "Well, I was gonna go more with moment of clarity, but sure, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean." And when I started thinking about it, I said, "Okay." And then you know, um, in the three pertinent points, you know, see, you know, God could and would if He were sought, and that's I was kind of like, "Well, I did, I did look for Him, and I did ask and." Things did change, so maybe there's more to the story, you know. And so, yeah, I just recently I went out to Barnes and uh, Borders, and I actually bought myself a little Bible, and I, I I've been peeking at it, you know. I just I know a lot of it, like just from growing up and hearing it. But I just, again, I've never had that personal experience, you know, with um with God like that, and that's that's part of my uh part of my journey as well. I find that it the thing that the rooms give me when it comes to this this idea of God or a higher power is flexibility that I don't get anywhere else. And I it, if I remain open-minded and I remain willing, my relationship that I never had before growing up with a higher power is allowed to grow. If I start putting boundaries on it or I start saying, if I do this, this, and this, and this, then I'm good with religion. I can check that box off. But instead I say, if I remain open-minded and I, 
am willing to do the work and the action to grow that relationship. Big book sits under my feet at my desk. It's a big book, and then the Bible on top of that, and then the Bhagavad Gita, I don't think I'm saying it right, on top of that, and then my what someone might call um, tarot cards or spiritual cards on top of that. So I have all four of these on top of each other, and I get to pick and choose what I want to crack open that day, which I try to do every day, open one of them and just get a message from the universe. I don't have yeah. to, I don't have to pick a team in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I get it. Let it grow. Agreed. Agreed. I, I, I feel the same way. Like right, right here, actually, I'm uh, right next to my nightstand. I have uh, Jordan Peterson, Robert Greene. I have Anton Chekhov's short stories. I, I have the big book. I have, like I said, I have the Bible. I, I read into a lot of different things. Uh, I try to get a lot of my get get a lot of meaning from different places. And one of the issues that I, well, not an issue, but one of the things that's always stuck out to me is like when they said a God of your understanding in a book, that, that was an issue for me because I'm like, well, that's, you know, if you're a person like me, well, a God of my understanding, well, my God is super cool and he lets me do pretty much <laughs> anything with the exception of like murder and this and that and that, you know what right, I mean? Other right, than right. that, man, he's the greatest God ever. That's me. I mean, Jesus Obviously. loved wine. I'm just saying. Yeah, you know what I mean. He, hey, Jesus hung out with you know the criminals and stuff, bro. That's right. Like he loved he if he loved anybody, he loved me. Okay. That's right. And it's and it's cool, but I know how I am, and so like I have to be careful and say like not to try to make my own meaning, you know, yeah. out of things. And so like I do much desire to to know, um, to know my Creator. Uh, I do believe in a, I, I do believe in a God. I'm not an atheist. I, I've always believed in in some sort of Creator. I just don't really know who that is for me as of yet, but I'm not opposed to it at all. Like I said, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm just looking, I'm searching. For me, that's, that's what AA is. That's what my higher power asked me to do is to just keep searching. Don't give up. You're, you're not, there is no finish line in your, in step three and step 11. Right. Like you just keep giving it back to me, keep working it. And sometimes me for me is, is plural. Sometimes it's just my spirit guide. Sometimes it's my ancestors. Sometimes it's Jesus. Sometimes it's, I don't know why I'm going on a soapbox about religion, but um, I do love the flexibility that the program gives us. Yeah, I know. And it gives you the, it tells you, right. I mean, it gives you the option. It says, Hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You can go, if you, you know what, you want to go explore go for it. You know, I haven't found a church yet. I've had a few suggestions. Um, I mean, so like I said, I I work a lot and because I work nights, uh, my schedule is a little bit uh, different. And so I have to like uh, basically go to work. And then if I want to go to a Sunday service or something like that, I have to go directly from work, which means I'm, I I have a very dirty job. And so (laughs) I'm basically going to go show up to work and, you know, in my work clothes, which I'm sure that no one's going to care, but you know, I would rather much, uh, you know, just kind of be able to come home, take a shower and then go or. You know, I, I think a non-denominational for me would be more uh, more open. I, my experience in the past with uh, those type of churches are, are a little bit better. Yeah. I think that there's just that open-mindedness where we just keep letting it flow. Okay. Yeah. Enough about me. I was there with you when you were in that blind spot in prison praying. It was beautiful. I loved it. I don't care what you call it, a spiritual experience or a moment of clarity it seemed like a pivotal point, and then you found your way, and you just kept coming back to the rooms. For the newcomer listening who hasn't had that blind spot praying moment yet, what message would you like to leave with them? Yeah, really, I mean, really, it's simple. You know, give yourself the opportunity. I, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and if if you haven't had this experience, don't, don't, don't. Get some help. You know, get some help, man. Reach out. There's no shame in that. And you know what I mean? It, it really, there isn't. I mean, I, you know, they, there's AAs worldwide, you know, and there's a reason for that, you know, because a lot of people need help and there's no shame behind it. A lot of the stigma is is gone, you know? Everybody understands that, you know, people have different situations and different circumstances, but whatever it is, you know, reach out. You know, I've had people reach out to me that don't want to go to AA. I say, okay, fine, don't go to AA. Go somewhere, man. Reach out to somebody, man, please. Like, don't, you don't have to go my way. And you don't have to experience what I experienced. I I, I am so envious sometimes of like what we call high bottom drunks. I'm like, oh, man, 
I'd kill to be a high bottom drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it is what it is, you know? I really, uh, I've had the discussion uh, with, with my fiance in the past of whether or not I would be the man I am today had I not gone through all the things that I went through. Oh, that's somebody cooking. Is that your smoke alarm going off? That's my smoke alarm, so there it is. It's off. Yeah, somebody's downstairs cooking. There it goes. It's off. But, yeah. But, you know, really, though, you know, give yourself a chance, you know, uh, avoid avoid suffering and pain if, if, if you can. There's, there's no need for it. You know, there's a like I said, AA is, is worldwide and uh, there's no there's, there's no excuse. There's no um, reason to not reach out. Uh, it's so it's so readily available. I mean, really, it really is. I mean, there's groups on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. On all on all platforms, there's people, you know, that you really so you really can reach out any which way you want. Zoom meetings too. Thank you very much for your story and your vulnerability and the beauty of your recovery. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it was a great experience. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.